Welcome to this special edition of the New Stack Makers on the Road. We're here at the Open Source Summit in Austin, Texas. Discussions from the show floor with technologists giving you their expertise and insights to help you with your everyday work. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily O'Meara with the New Stack, and today we're here at Open Source Summit in Austin. And I am chatting with Matt Yankovic, the head of open source strategy at Percona. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Emily. So why don't uh, you introduce yourself, tell everyone uh, what exactly the head of open source strategy does. Well, that's an interesting story. So the head of open source strategy is responsible for all the community activities at Percona, all of the open source activities and the outreach that we do in those spaces. So think of it as a combination of DevRel, community, and a little bit of that OSPO or open source program office role. Excellent. So uh, I had some questions, a little timely, I suppose, about uh, the economy and open source. So people have been freaking out a little bit about the economy. And I'm curious, what do you think all of this means? Like, let's say there is a recession, or at the very least, it seems like, you know, the free money might be going away. Uh, What does that mean for open source? Well, I think there's actually a couple things. Now, generally, open source is considered a bit recession proof, because how do you, you know, lose money on free, right? So it becomes something that, for a lot of people, um, is a bastion for people to go to when you do have a recession. Companies look to cut costs, they're going to look to cut costs and move to open source technology. So it typically is a good thing. But we're kind of in an unprecedented time right now. If you think about the last five years, the amount of funding and the amount of open source companies that have come out has been immense. If you look at the CNCF landscape, for instance, of all the open source companies in the space, each of the categories has dozens of potential overlapping technologies. And a lot of the funding over the last few years has been because I've got a good idea, I might have a little bit of adoption, now I'm going to get funding and try and make it you know, into something that's commercially viable. And as we enter a recession, that commercial viability really comes into play. And a lot of these companies might not have the runway or be able to get a second round of funding to see if they can make it happen. So I think we're going to have mixed bag. Open source will still thrive, but I think a lot of smaller companies uh, might be in for some trouble. It sounds like what you're saying is for an open source company, this you know could be some tough times. But for if you're looking sort of overall at the big picture of open source there's probably not going to be like, you know, it's not like open source is going to go away. Yeah, I think the big differentiator for a lot of people in the open source space is going to be the communities that they have that are behind their products and their projects. The larger the community base, the less likely they're going to have issues. Smaller companies who are just starting out that are pre-revenue, they've taken a project that might be a really, really solid idea and they've moved it into a space where now they've got some funding to try and make a go of it. They might not have that backing of not only the financial investors, but the communities themselves. And so they're going to have to find ways to be innovative without necessarily having the runway that some of the bigger companies have or the backing of the community. Do you think that things will change for, let's say, passion projects or say individual maintainers or contributors who are you know, working on open source either you know, as a way to just build their skills or as a passion project do you think that the economic climate will, will change how they interact with open source? I don't think so. It could accelerate it a bit just because as people find themselves looking for an outlet for their creativity or even maybe looking at themselves you know, outside a job looking in, looking for a job, they're going to find ways to innovate and they're going to still find problems that they want to you know, fix. 
And so that means that they're going to be looking out in the open source ecosystem for projects that they might want to contribute to, but they're also going to be looking at gaps and what they can do to fill them. And if some of these companies that do have smaller ecosystems don't get funding and maybe they go away, there's going to be opportunities there to either fork or maybe pick up the project or contribute as part of a smaller community and ecosystem. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there still. Do you think there is still opportunities for someone who's, you know, they're not venture funded, they're, they have a project, it has some adoption, but they want to monetize it. They want to bootstrap this. Is, is there still opportunity out there? It's tough. <laughs> Was it, there I, ever opportunity? Well, so, so I think that if you could look back in the history of open source, right, it started off where people have an idea and it's very inspirational. And that inspirational idea gets people excited and they want to contribute and they want to help make it a reality. And from there, you start to build a project. A lot of times that project isn't commercially viable right away, but you can get adoption. Think of a lot of JavaScript libraries or maybe you know individual little code snippets that are really helpful to a lot of people. They might not have a vision for how to monetize it, but they do have a wide scale adoption. Typically, let's say five, 10 years ago, to get funding, you would need to be closer to the commercially viable product in order to go out there and get funding, unless it's a little bit of angel investing, seed funding, things like that. But I think now, in the last three, four years, you've found that people who have an inspirational idea are getting funding that early. And I think that's going to change where you're going to have to show that not only do you have a product that is being adopted by a lot of people, but you also have a product that people want to pay for or there's something there. And so I think it will change and kind of reset where funding was maybe like, you know, five to 10 years ago where people will be a little bit more picky, but there will be money available. It's just you have to prove that there is a market for it. So we're talking a lot about the intersection of, of money, of finances and open source. Not yeah. everybody thinks that that's a good thing. Where do you fall on that argument? Like, so, are you an open source hippie or are I'm you both. A- I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a hippie with a, you know, a, a business plan, I guess. <laughs> um, I think that's probably the appropriate way to say it. But here's the thing, and, and I've said this to people who have worked on my team before, because they've come up and they say, why do we care about, you know, we shouldn't raise rates. We should, we should make everything more cost effective. It's like, well, don't you want to, you know, get paid for what you're doing? Don't you want to like, you know, be able to take a regular vacation, you know, have at least a normal job? And most people are like, yeah, I totally get that. And I am totally for, you know, having some sort of economic, you know, outcome for open source projects. Um, I think that a lot of maintainers struggle with that. And it's something that we need to do a better job of because there's a lot of great code out there and there's a lot of underfunded projects. And so how we change that conversation is gonna be critical because a lot of the projects we rely on might not get funded in the future, right? And they might have to go get a quote unquote real job or a non-hippie job in order to survive. And I think that that is something that we're gonna have to come to terms with sooner rather than later. And that ultimately becomes like technical debt or it becomes a reliability risk or a security risk because maybe somebody, you know, the maintainer has to go get a real job and now doesn't have time to. Well, you, you, yeah, you look at like the security issues that have come up, you know, like Log4j is the big one recently. And, you know, you have people who work on that project, but they're also working on other things and they're distracted. And a lot of those libraries and core pieces of software get so embedded into the stack, nobody realizes who's actually contributing fixing. They just assume because everyone in the world uses them, someone must be taking care of it. And trust is not a good security model. 
trust is not a good security model. Really, it isn't. It's horrible. You know, so we want to make sure that we have people who are maintaining the software we rely on is protected. And that's why there are new foundations. There's some companies that are looking to help with that. So there's some work, but we need to do a lot more in that space. As an organization that yeah, uses yeah. open source, what should you be doing to recognize which open source projects are underfunded and how you could sort of maximize your impact to, you know, solve that problem? Well, I think a lot of it depends on, you know, the software that you're running. I mean, even like bigger companies can sometimes be underfunded depending on where they are in the cycle. I think that we all get into contributing code because we think that someone else will use it. And we see value in sharing that and helping that the community finds value in it as well. And when they do, that's awesome. But then when bigger companies start to use that software, there becomes a heavier burden on the support side of it. And then it becomes less of a a passion project, more of a labor of love, and then finally just atrociously just a labor. And that's where when you look out at the ecosystem, look at, you know, your, your GitHub issues. You know, is it one person always responding? You know, are they burning the midnight oil to respond and fix things? You know, who are the code contributors? All of those things are really valuable and important. And understanding if it's a one-person show, how can you help? And sometimes help isn't just monetary. A lot of times it could be contributing code. It could be fixing bugs. It could be answering questions. It could be providing feedback. All those are valuable contributions, and I think they're often underlooked. I think a point you bring up is that not every, you know, passion project that someone starts, the goal isn't always I'm going to help Coca-Cola maximize their profits, for example. Right. But then Coca-Cola starts using your open source project, and their downtime could be your problem, and then that's a burden. Right, and that's where, you know, there, like I mentioned, there are companies, I think Tidelift is here at the show or, you know, a few others where they're looking to see what they can do to help maintainers, you know, uh, bring some monetization to their smaller projects. But it's still not enough. And I mean, as we've seen, you know, there's kind of a rise in, you know, quote unquote, protestware or people nuking their own projects where they're like, oh, we're not getting funded and there's so many people who use it. So I'm going to prove a point that you rely on me. So you should pay me. It's not a good thing, but it's starting to happen. So how we find out which of those projects need help and help them is going to be important. And I think a lot of that responsibility is going to fall to people's open source program offices to identify them as potential risks and see what they can do to mitigate those risks. You know, if Coca-Cola is relying heavily on a project or a big bank is, you know, figuring out a way to support that particular project, if everyone donates, you know, 20, 30K, that can make up one person's salary in a year just by a few companies doing it. So how do you balance, you know, the open source heritage of being, you know, open source hippie with being an open source capitalist and in a way that's sustainable? I mean, it sounds like part of the problem can be, you know, you tr you start out maybe as an open source hippie, but then you get burned out because you'd like to pay your bills without working for 14 hour days. Indeed. And then you nuke everyone because you want them to pay you and then that's like total pendulum swing to the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a it's a difficult question to, to answer because you have to walk the line there. But at the same time, you have to be realistic because if you have a labor of love and people are using it, it doesn't mean that it is a commercially viable, successful project that you can monetize. A lot of people mistake download numbers or users for something that is potentially profitable. And in the end, it might not be. 
And I think that that's where asking for either contributions directly from heavy users, understanding who's using your software, what companies are, and being open and honest and transparent. Look, you know, I'm doing this as a part-time thing. I'd love to do it full-time, but I need some help. So who wants to sponsor me? Having those conversations, it shouldn't feel sleazy for, from you to have those or to, to ask for help. I think that a lot of people, especially that I've met here at the Open Source Summit and elsewhere in the open source space, they're willing to help. They just don't know how to help. And if somebody says, hey, we're looking for you know five gold sponsors for our project, and if we don't get those, I don't know how long I can maintain this on my own, that's that's an okay message to put out there. I think another point that you're making is that you know download numbers are not a community. And <laughs> yes. that the key to making yourself more recession-proof is having that community. And having a community means being engaged, talking to people, yeah. understanding how they're using it, not just saying, oh my God, I got a million downloads, woohoo. Yeah, and I think that that's the, the critical thing, right? So downloads do not a community make. And you can have a bot that comes out and downloads your software every minute of every day, and it stacks those download metrics. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a community behind it. So what you want to look for on a community side is how much engagement are you getting from people on your forums or your GitHub issues? How many PR requests? Contributions and community aren't just code, and that's really important as well. A lot of contributions, the most valuable ones are often feedback you know, participating in, you know, testing out, you know, blogging or telling other people about how you like the software, how you love it, just giving references. Those things are so valuable. That helps build that community. And if you have enough people who are behind the community, not just code contributors, but also people who are doing those types of activities, then you can survive the recession and potentially even grow because you'll have people who are passionate about your project and you're not going to be going alone. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for chatting, Matt. Oh, you're and welcome. thank you, everyone who joined us by video or audio. Again, I'm Emily, and we're here at Open Source Summit in Austin. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes on the new Stack Makers. Create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more articles and great stories, go to the newstack.io.